good news. We're on Spotify. So if you normally get your music or other podcasts through Spotify, you can add the BHP to your list. Currently, it's a little tricky to find the show because the algorithm is apparently not that great, but I have a direct link at thebritishhistorypodcast.com that'll take you right there. Or if you decide to search for us on the app, just make sure to scroll down a bit. We're in there. Somewhere. I promise. All right, let's start the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is the Halloween special. I love Halloween. I think it might be my favorite holiday, and it's not because I like spooky things. Actually, I kind of hate horror films. But the reason why I love Halloween is because in the pantheon of modern holidays, it really stands out. Most holidays in the Western world have been rebranded and repackaged to fit a Christian theme or a specific nation. As a consequence, it's traditional to go to church on Christmas and Easter, even though bunnies and fat men in red suits don't get a single mention in the Bible. But Halloween is different. There's no awkward attempt to justify its existence. Halloween is an out-of-the-closet pagan holiday, and it feels pagan. It feels old. And that's because it is. And I love that. That is, with the exception of one new tradition that I've been experiencing. Ever since starting this podcast, at around this time of the year, I start to get emails and tweets from Englishmen about how much they hate Halloween. Specifically, they tell me that they hate that America is forcing Halloween upon Britain. From the way that they talk, you get the impression that there's a cabal of Americans, of which I'm apparently a member, that's deliberately exporting Halloween to England, specifically to annoy the same kind of people who write negative Yelp reviews about Mykonos because it doesn't have a Tesco's. And I'll be honest, I'm tired of getting this email. First of all, because there's no conspiracy of Americans exporting Halloween. The reason why there's jack-o'-lanterns down the street from your off-license shop is because the locals are importing it. They're seeking it out. And they're doing it because it's fun. But second, because Halloween isn't an American holiday. It's a British one. Specifically, it's from the Celtic areas of Britain, which I know for some Englishmen is scarcely better than it being American. But it's still British. So today... In the interest of encouraging your grumpy uncle to get off the keyboard and start having a little fun, I'm going to teach you about the history of Halloween. The British history of Halloween. Now, harvest festivals have a very, very long history in Britain. Like, thousands of years. And that's not really that surprising for an island that has had farming for thousands of years and has also had winters. But I want to prove to your uncle that Halloween is British, Not merely that there were old harvest festivals in Britain at one point. So rather than going full old school on this, and going all the way back to the pre-Halloween festivals, we're going to talk about the recent history of Halloween. About the time where it was actually called Halloween. Now if you think about old spooky tales that start to circulate as soon as the weather turns, you'll get a hint as to what period I'm going to be talking about today. When I mention Halloween, what are the images that come to mind? Do you get cobbled streets, ghostly carriages, maybe haunted manors? Well, there's a reason for that. It's because our modern cultural imaginary for Halloween has heavy roots in the 18th and 19th centuries. So for this episode, we're going to give the Anglo-Saxons a break 
and we're jumping ahead to the Georgians and the Victorians. And while they didn't invent this holiday out of whole cloth, many of the traditions that have reached us in our modern day were celebrated in some form by them. Now, as we have already learned in the show, there's a close cultural connection between Northern Ireland and Southwest Scotland. That stretch between the area of Ulster and southwestern Scotland have been in close contact for thousands of years. And actually, the reason why Scotland is called Scotland derives from that very cultural link. And this cultural, linguistic, and population drift has gone in both directions the entire time. In fact, if you're in northeastern Ireland, you might still hear about the Ulster Scots. And the Ulster Scots are the descendants of the Scottish settlers who migrated to the Ulster region back in the 1600s. The point is, though, that there was a lot of cultural contact and migration and general mixing that was going on across that narrow stretch of the Irish Sea. And that makes the Ulster Scots particularly interesting for a cultural analysis, because they're a blend of the various cultures that span the British Isles. But at the same time, they've also developed a suite of their own unique cultural behaviors. And luckily, thanks to some writers who took an interest in what was going on in that region, we have access to a rather deep dive into the way Halloween was handled during that Sleepy Hollow period of its development. And that's really fortunate, because folk traditions are prone to getting lost to time. The problem is, they tend to get practiced by average folk, and they're so common that nobody thinks to write them down until it's usually too late, and the tradition has been forgotten. But these writers have managed to preserve a key piece of our shared spooky culture. And that gives us a window not only into the Ulster Scots, but also into the broader British culture that was around. And this whole season of Halloween began with the last sheaf. Harvest season had come, which meant that there was an enormous amount of work to be done. I mean, this was before industrialization, so society revolved around agriculture, and the work, therefore, was tied to the seasons. That means that while people typically worked significantly less than we do now, and they had free time that we'd honestly probably kill for, when harvest season arrived, all hands were on deck. This was a massive undertaking every year, and it required people all across the village for gathering, cutting, storing, preserving, and doing all the other things necessary to obtain the fruits of what they had sown. It was a big deal. And one of the biggest crops that they were harvesting was grain. In particular, oats. So imagine large numbers of peasants out in the fields with sickles, methodically cutting down whole fields of oats. Then they gather them into bundles, sheaths, and then hand them off to other family members, workers, and neighbors so that they could properly separate it from the chaff and store it. And this work would go on and on. It would continue all the way until there was only a handful of stocks that remained in the field. It was backbreaking work, and it had to be done in a set amount of time. You can't be lazy with this kind of work, otherwise your crop would rot in the wet fields. But once the task was done, once they had harvested all the wheat, and they made it to that final sheaf. It was cause for celebration. So rather than cutting down those last few oats, they would pause. And instead, the village would take these final stalks, separate them into thirds, braid them together, and then the men who were working in the fields would step a certain distance away and hurl their sides at it. It was a competition. And whoever cut down that last sheaf had the right to it. But they didn't have the right to keep it. Instead, the winner would take the last sheaf, won as a prize, and place it around his neck. 
he would then march triumphantly up to the estate of the owner of the land. Because remember, they weren't working their own land here. They were peasants. And there, the winning peasant would meet with a master or mistress of the estate and place the sheaf around his or her neck. It was ceremonial. And as a ceremony, it's curious. There are elements of deference to it, as the prize, the sheaf, is being given to the owner of the estate, almost like offering a tribute. But there were also expectations that came with that gift. Upon the presentation of the last sheaf, the estate owner was expected to provide large amounts of food and drink. This was the start of the harvest feast. It was a feast called the churn. And this odd little ritual exchange can be seen, like most rituals, in a number of different ways. In the one sense, it can be seen as a moment where the landlord rewards his workers, almost as an agricultural form of what we've seen with warrior feasting culture. But it also can be seen as more of like a demand or a threat. We've done what was required, and now we expect to receive what we are due. And I kind of suspect it was both. But regardless, the man who cut the last sheaf sat in the place of honor during this feast. And that's really surprising. Because even though culture was highly class-based during this era, we're seeing that the man who cut the last sheaf was made into the chief guest for the dinner. And actually, if he was unmarried, he was now the number one most eligible bachelor and was literally expected to be the next to marry. It was sort of like today if he caught the bouquet at a wedding. But now that the last sheaf was cut and presented, it was time for the churn to begin. The sheaf would be placed on the table, or over the hearth, or over a door. It would be put in some place of honor, and then the celebration would begin, and people would enter the hall. If the sheaf was placed over the entrance of a door, the first young woman to enter might get kissed by one of the reapers. It had a sort of mistletoe-like association for love and pairing. But unlike mistletoe, this was directly connected to harvest, which means that there was actually an even more direct link to fertility here. And you know, that use of the sheaf shared a lot in common with harvest knots, which also tended to pop up at around the harvest time. For harvest knots, what they would do is take straws of grain and then twist them together into a braid. And then they'd leave the seeds hanging open at the end. Again, the symbolism here. After you have your harvest knot, you would then give that knot to the person that you loved. Women would then tie them into their hair and men would wear them on their lapels. Anyway, back to the churn. So eventually, once everyone was in the hall, the churn really got into its full swing. And harvest season is generally a time of celebration in agricultural societies. And the British Isles were no exception. This was a time of high spirits. There would be eating and drinking and dancing. There would be songs. Sometimes the mistress of the house would even get up and dance with the sheaf on her back. And again, Elements of the cycle of fertility were woven all throughout the celebration. And as the night dragged on, and it was time for the party to end, they would bring it to a close. And in a lot of regions, the churn would be ended by the singing of Old Lang Syne. Afterwards, the sheaf often stayed in the estate for quite some time. Many times in the kitchen, it was seen as a ward against bad luck or evil spirits. Many think this was closely related to the practice of making corn dollies. Those were dolls that were made out of grain stalks put out for both decorations and a spiritual protection. But in the estate, the sheaf would stay until spring. And once spring arrived, it would be mixed in with the seeds of that year's crop and re-sown, or be fed to the livestock. 
from harvest to feast, and then again to the field. The cycle mirrored that of death, life, and birth. And this focus on the harvest and rebirth could also be found echoing in the rituals carried out in regional churches. Some churches allowed the locals to lavishly decorate their church, and even the pulpit, with grain and harvest-themed decorations. And those decorations sometimes even included corn dollies. And like I mentioned earlier, corn dollies were essentially magical talismans warding off evil spirits. So this was a bit like going to your priest and telling them that you'd like to have a voodoo doll of your new mother-in-law at your wedding. You know, just to be safe. And while some churches did protest and try and stamp out the practice... They had limited success, because old traditions die hard. But only after the last sheaf and the churn could you finally reach Halloween. And the reason why I told you about the sheaf is because Halloween didn't exist in a vacuum. The celebration was part of a series of festivals that marked specific stages of the year. Halloween didn't start because someone said, Hey, October 31st seems like a pretty good time for a party. Rather, there's a lot that's happening at that time of the year, and it happens every year. And so Halloween was celebrated because of what was happening in the lives of the people who were celebrating it. All summer, their produce had been growing. It had been ripening. And as October approached, they could practically taste it. And then harvest season came. Halloween season. And suddenly, there was all this bounty, a burst in the availability of food. It was a fattening time, and not just for squirrels. And as a side note, I love how fat squirrels get at this time of the year. In fact, the other day I saw one that could barely get up into his tree. But it was also a fattening time for the people as well. Harvest time is a really good time for an agricultural society. And so it follows that more than any other festival, Halloween was marked by food. No other holiday was celebrated with so many special dishes by the Ulster Scots as Halloween. You had various breads, root vegetable-based dishes, dumplings, apple dishes, you name it. The harvest was done, and that meant that when it came time for the Halloween feast, it was a feast. But at the same time, the Halloween season has a dual identity. It isn't just about celebrating a time of plenty. It was also about marking the arrival of winter. Life was about to change. Everything was going to be different now. Your daily tasks had shifted. The woods had changed color and appearance. The behaviors of the animals had changed. The weather was different, which had been previously grazing in the summer pastures, had returned to the village. Everything was different. And actually, Halloween was traditionally regarded as the end of the year in Ireland, likely exactly for this reason. The land, which was so recently filled with a bounty of riches, had suddenly turned. The leaves were falling. The animals were migrating. Others were hibernating. Everything was getting colder and darker. Life took on a markedly different tone. And winter was now fully here. We're at the turning of a new year. And in the cycle of the seasons, right after harvest comes a period that feels a bit like death. So while we do have festivals celebrating the harvest, it's not surprising that we also see commemorations for the coming of winter. And whereas midwinter festivals function as a surety that spring will come, and as a result, midwinter celebrations have themes of hope and rebirth. For Halloween, this season is only just beginning. 
and so it takes on a different tone. It embraces the coming change. And considering the degree of mysticism that surrounds the thematic elements of Halloween, it's not difficult to trace the traditions that we observe to older and more spiritual practices. And with all this change that was happening, it's not surprising that the celebration was associated with the supernatural. In fact, winter and the changing of the new year have both long been associated with the supernatural. In particular, with spirits and the dead. And you could even say that they still do. You don't set ghost stories in balmy summer afternoons. Or if you think ghost stories are silly, consider this. Every year we commemorate the lives that were lost in war. And we do it on November 11th. Now that was the date that the First World War ended. So it makes a certain degree of sense. But at the same time, there were all manner of similarly important dates where Remembrance Day could have been set. And you have to admit, something just feels right about setting Remembrance Day in November. And the fact is, Britain and many other European cultures have treated the turn towards winter with a sort of spiritual reverence. And they've been doing it for pretty much as long as we can track it. So what this celebration is all about is the changing of the season. The world turning. And that's such a compelling theme that the church tried to elbow its way in on this pretty early. Starting in 731, the church declared that actually all these people celebrating Samhain in distinctly pagan ways were actually just Christians getting super excited about All Saints Day, which was happening on the following day. So they were kind of pre-gaming because it was just so cool that we're going to go and celebrate all these saints. And so they declared that the day before All Saints Day was also about All Saints Day. It was the Eve of All Saints, or the Eve of All Hallows, hence Halloween. But let's not kid ourselves here. This is a harvest festival, and it's older than Christianity. It's pagan. You can't get away from it. And I think that's why the church was never fully able to claim it. And it's why in the 18th century, normally devout Christians would take a break on Halloween and start dabbling in divination and the occult. Have you ever bobbed for apples? Or at least seen bobbing for apples in a movie? That wasn't just a game for people who really liked apples. It was a fortune-telling practice. Now what specific fortune your apple foretold depended on your region. But one type of fortune was more common than others. And considering that this was a harvest festival, can you guess what was commonly divined by your success or your lack of success in the apple barrel? Yep, love. If you got an apple on your first try, you were going to be lucky in love. But if it took you a while, well, maybe focus on your career. And amusingly, the use of apples in this practice might actually be related to Pomona, a Roman goddess who had a festival at around the same time as Halloween. After all, we really are dealing with very old practices here. But whatever the case, divination was a common part of old Halloween evenings entertainment. And that's just one type of divination. In Ulster and Scotland, there were more than 10 different practices that were used during this period to figure out everything from whether or not you find love to when you're going to die. You'd have rings being baked into dishes, which personally I just think foretells a future broken tooth, but maybe that's just me. And there was even this odd practice that involved burning two nuts in a fire. And the way this one worked is you got two nuts, you name them both, one for each of your loves, and then you chuck them both into the fire. 
and see which one burned brightest. Again, you have fertility playing a starring role in Old Halloween. And it played right alongside the themes of time passing and divination and access to a sort of spiritual knowledge. And a lot of this stuff might sound familiar to you. Because the funny thing is that many of the Halloween games we now associate with young children were originally played by adults, and they were a lot more rambunctious before they got toned down in recent years. These old references are everywhere. You know those cauldrons that are part of so many decorations? That's actually derived from an old Celtic belief that souls go into a cauldron after your death. And the cauldron was a metaphor for a womb. So that spooky witch that you see stirring a cauldron is actually a mangled ancestral image of rebirth. It's not spooky. That's life about to come back. There are other elements to this celebration that you'll find familiar. For example, adults delighted in spooking children. One way they would do this is that they place a pile of salt on a child's forehead and tell them that they needed to keep the salt there, otherwise the fairies would get them. The poor child would just have to lay there all night, probably completely sleepless and desperately trying to keep that salt on their head, otherwise they're going to get taken off to Brigadoon. And meanwhile, the adults were probably just outside of the house, pissing themselves with laughter. There was also guising and trick-or-treating, and we talked about that in a previous Halloween episode, so I won't rehash it, but that was certainly part of their celebrations. And actually, disguises and costumes were necessary, because another core aspect of a Halloween's festivities were pranks and tricks. And those were carried out not just by the adults, but also by the older kids. For example, if you had a horrible neighbor, Halloween might be a good time to remove the gates from his fence and place them on his roof. And that's something that was actually recorded as happening. And here's where the costumes come into it. Due to the disguises and the sheer spiritual nature of the holiday, you had plausible deniability. You could say you didn't do it. It was obviously just angry spirits or rambunctious fairies who were upset that he was such a dick at the churn. And in this way, the pranking and the disguises operated as a way for people to let off steam and keep the community together. And speaking of community being together, bonfires were also very common for Halloween celebrations. And that's not really that surprising. If you get everybody together and it's cold outside, you're probably going to want a bonfire. So large crowds of people would gather around the bonfire, and they'd be singing and drinking and dancing. They'd tell spooky stories, or try and tell the future, or maybe try and commune with the dead, or just spook children, or get even with their crappy neighbor, or extort candy from their landlord. They would dress up in fun costumes and play games. They would bring out old items that reach back to old symbols of fertility, like the witch's cauldron. They would decorate their houses, their common spaces, and even their church in celebration of this event. And they would do it because it was something that their people had been doing for a very long time. Because it was how the community gathered together and strengthened their bonds before the long dark of winter arrived. They did it because fertility is something that should be celebrated. And because Halloween festivals are fun. Which is why America adopted them. And if you really want to give us credit for your holiday, you can. But before you give it up, know that Halloween is and has always been a gift that humanity gave to itself before it settled down for a long winter. Halloween is a kick-ass harvest fertility festival with ghost stories, pranking, and costumes. Are you sure you don't want to get in on this? 
It's yours after all, and it's pretty awesome. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we have a lot of communities, and you can join any or all of them by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.